Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Valley. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. And man, it is great to have you uh, with us, especially if you're uh, new and many of you are back uh, in worship with us in person for the first time today. And so thank you all for being here and want to welcome you all online as well. Uh, we're going to be looking at John 14, verses 1 through 6, as we continue our series in the I Am Statements of Jesus. And um, I want to pray for us first, and, and in light of some really good news, that Jesus is on his throne, and Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's as true today as it was yesterday, and it'll be as true to, uh, tomorrow as it is today. Jesus is the King, and some of you are really glad for the way the election turned out, and some of you are very sad at the way the election turned out. But regardless, Christ is Lord, he's the King, and he is on his throne. And I just want to thank God for that. And then also I want to um, just pray for our country and pray uh, for the unity uh, of our country. That we, we, especially those who follow Jesus, would be a part of loving our neighbors well in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we give you thanks that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And while matters like politics and elections are important and they do matter, that ultimately our allegiance and our heart and our hope needs to be bound in you. So we come, Father, and we ask that your people, you would enable your people to be humbled, called by your name, and would demonstrate faithfulness in this moment to love you, to serve you with joy, to love their neighbors themselves, and to be a part of, of bringing uh, loving kindness, peace, and grace uh, to our nation. And we pray for that, Father. Would you protect our nation from being even further divided? Would you enable us, enable us to be a part of that as we reflect your goodness your character to the world as your followers. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So today we're continuing uh, in this series where we're looking at the I Am statements of Jesus and focusing our hearts on him during this time. And we look at one in John 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to read the passage and at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then let's join together by saying, thanks be to God. Jesus says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when you're writing a sermon, I'll give you a little uh, sermon class in case any of you ever want to preach a sermon sometime. <laughs> you go to a passage like this and there's all this rich content and you have to make decisions. Where will your focus be and 
what, are the, what is the message that my people need to hear today? What does the church need to hear? And we could go in this moment, like right here, to the, this I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and life. We could do a three-part series on that, that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the life. And yet, he gives us this I am statement right in the midst of a context where he's telling his friends, his followers, his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. So he is, he is speaking, he's shepherding, he's pastoring these disciples in the midst of when they're feeling great trouble. And that's where we find this I am statement. And so we're gonna focus on the promise that Jesus gives them because he's gonna teach us in this passage how to deal with trouble. And it's in the midst of that that we get this I am statement. But our focus is gonna be on the context of, of what Jesus did in this passage, which is this. He shepherded and encouraged his followers in this moment with an amazing promise that he's going to prepare a place for them. Their hearts are troubled. They've been following Jesus. They left their wives, they left their parents, they left their own children, they left their homes, they left their businesses, they left everything and followed Jesus for three years. And increasingly, and I mean, we don't stop and think about some of that sometimes. Like these Bible characters seem like, you know, fictional characters sometimes. And we forget the humanity of them. That they were real people who made an enormous sacrifice to follow Jesus. And yet, towards the end of his ministry, he starts telling them, I will suffer and die. I am, as he makes his way, like we study in the Gospel of Mark, he starts setting his face towards Jerusalem to go and to be the Passover lamb on the Passover. And they're picking this up and their hearts begin to get more and more troubled as he begins to say things like, where I'm going, you may not go with me, that kind of thing. And they have this great concern. What is happening? What is gonna happen to him? We've left our family and our friend. We've bound up our hearts in who Jesus is and now he keeps saying these terrifying things. But he says this, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I want you to be careful here. Don't insinuate that Jesus means that he's not God. That's not what he means when he says believe in God and believe also in me. He's saying believe in God the Father and believe in the one whom the Father has sent, his Son. He's saying this, don't let your hearts be troubled. And what is the heart? Obviously it's not, it's not just this organ that God has created that beats in our body. It is the very center of who we are. It's our will, our affections, our loves, um, and, and that what, things that we attach to. And so it's, it is the very center of our being. And he's saying, don't be shaken to the core over this news. Don't let this trouble you or upset you or disturb you at the very center of your life. Instead, believe in God and believe in me. And you see in this call to believe the reality that faith is much more than just an intellectual assent. If you want saving faith, real faith, I mean, it's one thing just to say, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe there's a God. Yeah, I believe in eternity. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, etc. But then to actually have saving faith, an actual real faith, involves much more than just that kind of bare assent. I mean, even the Bible says that even the demons have that kind of belief and they shudder, right? So they have way better theology than we do. They know exactly what is true, but they reject it. 
But saving faith looks upon God as true and then acts on it, and it's in trouble, right? It's in times of trouble and distress that we get to, in a sense, act out of what we say we believe. It's one thing to say you believe. It's another thing to lean into what you believe. It's another thing to practice what you believe. It's, but it's in trouble that you get to most exercise that faith. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Have faith in me. Believe in me. But how do we normally face trouble? Usually what I've found in observing people and myself is we have a tendency to, to either maximize our problems or minimize them. We tend to maximize them or minimize them. Are you a maximizer or are you a minimizer? Uh, do you go to WebMD a lot? Uh, you're a maximizer, right? You are. <laughs> you go to WebMD, I've got some symptoms. I don't know what it is. And, and actually, these can be very helpful. I've, I, I self-diagnose myself all the time. I must be a maximizer. So I, I go and I, I look. And I, but like what happens is if you're a true maximizer, I have these symptoms. I'm going to go look on WebMD. And you don't, you don't pick the thing that it could be that's the least problematic, right? You go right for the worst. Well, I have this. And then you may not even necessarily go get help or see a doctor, but you've found out you have this horrible thing and then you can just maximize your worry about it. So you're a maximizer. Others of you, though, are minimizers where we have this friend and literally he could have surgery the next day. It doesn't matter what's going on in his life. You say, how are you doing? He goes, practically perfect. I am practically perfect. It literally doesn't matter what has happened in his life. He is practically perfect. But some of us magnify our problems. We blow them up. We amplify them. We expand them. And others of us minimize. It's just a scratch, right? I've seen worse. And that seems like a more godly response, doesn't it? Minimizing, practically perfect. Everything's great. Praise God. You can spiritualize it. But interestingly... As Jesus deals with trouble and he's showing the disciples, calling them, he doesn't say, hey, my impending death is not a big deal. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't say like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's, it's not. He says, no, I want you to maximize God's problem or promises. You don't maximize the problem. You have to maximize God's promises to us. And that's what I want us to see today. And it's really only one point. Usually I have three or four for you, but today just one. How to deal with, with trouble. Jesus says you have to maximize God's promise to, to you. The answer is not found in minimization and it's not of your problems and it's definitely not in turning it up. You understand that. But instead, it's in increasing the volume of God's promises in your life. And I want to use an analogy for this sermon. It's going to be ongoing throughout the rest of the sermon about the soundboard of your life. We have this amazing soundboard ba back here in this corner in, in the booth, and it has 48 channels, believe it or not. That means we can take independently, we can mic put a microphone on this drum, this drum, this cymbal, this cymbal, these two guitars, all of these microphones, my microphone, the handheld, all these different inputs have their own slider on the soundboard and you can turn up the volume of every single thing I just mentioned or you can turn it down and it even has a mute button right so if you're yeah nice that's really funny <laughs> I knew that was coming because he did it in first service but I didn't even tell him in, in first service and he did so 
you can be muted, you can turn up, you can, and so forth. And I want you to be thinking in your life, in the soundboard of your life, what is up in your mix? Trouble? And we have some control of this. Some of it is sort of out of our control in some ways. But what is turned up the most in, in you, the mix of your life? What is the loudest on your soundboard? What is coming through most clear? Is it God's promises that kind of ring above everything else? Or is it the trouble? And I think for most of us, we have trouble. Trouble is the thing that's ringing out over everything else. And somewhere, somehow, God's promises remain true and are continuing your sound mix, but they've got to be amplified more and more and more. And the trouble in your mix needs to go down. But Jesus doesn't minimize it. In fact, in John 12, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled as he's facing his hour. He calls it the hour, which is his cross. His soul was troubled. Jesus hated death. He scorned it. He he cried, he wept at the funeral of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, right, you know, someday, and that Jesus himself would raise from the dead. And even though he knew he would make him live again right there in that, in that moment, he wept. Jesus doesn't minimize the trouble or the day or the hour. He has anxiety in the garden right before he goes to the cross. Jesus sweats blood, in that moment, so Jesus does not minimize the trouble, but the way that we see Jesus deal with trouble is he maximizes God's promises. They are clear. They're the thing that he has attached his heart to fully. It says in Hebrews 12 too, which we began this series with and talking about, looking to Jesus, the author of Hebrews calls us, looking to Jesus who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author of our story. He is the one who started our faith and he perfects our faith. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the cross? As he had the Father's face turned from him, he's enduring the physical suffering of crucifixion, but on the cross, God the Father is pouring out his anger and wrath for the world's sins, Jesus is receiving the judgment that you and I deserve on the cross, but in, in, instead of it falling on us, it's falling on him. How did he endure that? He'd enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father throughout every moment of his life, and in that moment, the Father turns his face away, and that's the worst part of the cross for him. And in that moment, how did he endure it? He set his eyes on the fact of the promise that would be accomplished through what he was doing on the cross. And you are the promise. You, you are the promise. You are the promise. You are the promise that he would save his people from their sin. Amen? That he would kill death in his resurrection. That he would destroy the destructive nature of sin and that he would save a people for himself. You and me. That he would accomplish that. That was the joy that set before him. Saving us. What a promise. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he gives them this beautiful promise. I am leaving. But if I go, 
I prepare a place for you. And in my father's house are many rooms. In the original language, it's mansions even. In my father's house are many mansions. And I go, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you so that you can be with me. And I love how beautiful this imagery is because I have a hard time understanding eternity. We talk about the coming kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. He's ushering in the kingdom of God. He will return again. There'll be the new heavens and the new earth. And I know a few things about the, the coming kingdom. I know that it's not just, uh, we won't be just like angels floating around. We're, we're humans. We'll be us uh, in a glorified state. Probably the people we would have been if the fall had never taken place, perfected in creation. I know that we're not going to be disembodied, even though if you die today, your soul will be with the Lord, but your body will wait until the coming of Jesus. And I know that he's, when he returns and it's all said and done, that the dead in Christ will rise and that the new heavens and the new earth will come and that we will be with Christ in the city of God, with him as our king forever and ever. But it's still a little intangible, is it not? But I can get around the idea of a room especially a mansion, right? If in my father's house are many mansions. And space matters. You may not be into aesthetics that much, or, but it, it does matter. It, it, matter it, it makes a difference how you feel in, in, a, in a room or a home. We raised our boys in our home that we bought when we moved here, and now that they've all gone to college last year, Becky and I are just about, Becky and I decided to remodel our house. And, and we've discovered, like, all that hard work, it mattered in the sense that, like, we love being in our home right now. And it's not that we didn't love it before, but the way that we've designed it and put it together, like, it, it kind of matters. And it's, it's this beautiful place to be that we really enjoy being and having people in our home. And I want you to imagine that God has sent the Son who's going to prepare a place for us. He's working on a home for you, an eternal home. This past weekend, uh, Becky set up two Christmas trees already in our home. Uh, but they're not Christmas trees, she keeps telling me. They're Thanksgiving trees. And she's taken every fall ornament in the house, which are significant. There's a lot. And they have made their way all under the tree. And they're, they're beautiful. And that has set a tone. We had such a beautiful day yesterday. I'm making chili. We're watching football. And she is putting together these, these beautiful Thanksgiving trees. Did you know that's a thing? I didn't know it's a thing. Well, it's a thing. It's a thing at our house. I'll tell you that much. And we have this, these trees. All that to say, there's this magnificent promise. We don't let our imaginations run wild enough. C.S. Lewis's great book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, is, gave me, I think, the best picture of heaven that I've ever thought of or read or experienced. It made me long, as I read that series, more than once. It made me long for the coming kingdom more than anything else because it made it more tangible. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, let your imagination run wild. God is creating a place for us, an eternal home. And he means for us to attach our hope there. The Russian author, Leo Tolstoy, he wrote Anna Karenina, of course. He wrote War and Peace. He grew up Eastern Orthodox. And like many young people, he left his faith. However, later in life, he worked out 
a faith in Christ, a saving faith, through what he saw as the implications of nothingness. If there is nothing after we die, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if all we have is the material world and we're just physical beings and that when we die, we just become the dust of the earth and there's nothing more, what does that mean then? And I've read this quote many times, but I'll read it again. He says this, I was not yet 50. I had a good wife who loved me and whom I loved, good children, a large estate, which without much effort and on my part improved and increased. I was praised by others and without much self-deception could consider that my name was famous, and it was. Long before television and radio and internet, he was famous due to his work. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, a question without any answer to which one cannot live, is this. Is there any meaning in my life that my inevitable death awaiting does not destroy? Is there any ultimate meaning in my life if in the end we all die and that's it? There's no eternity. There's no resurrection. If there's only nothingness after this life, then all of the good things I have in this life are undone, he says, by my inevitable death, meaninglessness. But Jesus says, I will take you to be where I am. And we have to learn as believers to turn up the volume of that promise in our sound mix, to turn it up and so that we hear that clearly. Jesus means they are stressed, they are under turmoil they are troubled in their hearts and Jesus says but I'm going to prepare a place for you and the way to deal with trouble is not to minimize our problems even though we have a tendency to do that as Christians everything's fine everything's great especially at church right you're dressed up you're smiling it's at church you put on your game face it's great praise God awesome things are great we minimize The answer is not found in minimizing your problems and trouble. It's instead to turn up the volume of God's promise over the trouble. In this world, you'll have trouble, but I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And he says, again, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. What a beautiful promise. But Thomas the doubter asked, and I love that it was Thomas. But Lord, we don't know where you're going. He's so literal, right? Are you going to Queen Creek? Are you going to Gilbert? Are you going to Tucson? Where, we know it's not Tucson. Where, where are you going? Just kidding, I love Tucson. Jesus, where are you going? And he doesn't get, obviously, that Jesus is talking about going to the Father, going to an eternal, you know, dying. And he says, Thomas, I am the way. You don't, I, am, I am the way to where I'm talking about. I am the path. I am the direction. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is where we get our I am statement. And of all the I am statements, it's got to be the most exclusive. I mean, come on. I am the way Who says that? I'm not just 
a part of truth. I am the truth. I'm not just pro-life. <laughs> I'm life. Not death. I am life itself. I am truth itself in my personhood. I am life. I am truth. And I'm the way for you to get to the Father. And there's no other way, he says. That doesn't get any more exclusive. Who can say stuff like this? Several years ago, and I've told this story many times too, I was playing golf with our oldest son. He was very young at the time, uh, probably like, I don't know, fifth grade. And I took him golfing probably for the first or second time in his life. And I didn't want us to be paired up with anyone because one, I wanted to be with my son. But two, if you play golf and you get paired up with someone who's just learning to play golf, it's miserable. So for the other person, I didn't want them to be, have to endure this, right? But we were. And while we're talking, the inevitable uh, question comes up that guys have to ask one another, right? What do you do? Because that's all that seems to matter to us. So, so what do you do? So I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. And usually at that point, people begin to apologize for their cussing and their bad language and so forth. And say, oh, you're a pastor. Well, praise Jesus, you know. And, and, then, uh, and forgive me for my former cussing for the last five holes. That's usually what happens. But um, not in this case. He started to say, oh, you're a pastor. And then for about three holes, he began to tell me that how frustrated he is with religion because all religions believe exactly the same thing. All, all faiths are saying exactly the same thing and there are all many ways to God and there's all these different paths and ultimately they're all saying exactly the same things. All religions say exactly, this goes on and on for hole after hole after hole and I finally go, you know what? This is a subject I actually know a little bit about. This is my profession. They're not saying exactly the same thing. They're not. Superficially, they look a lot alike and they say a lot of similar things. They talk about God, they talk about sin, they talk about various things, but I promise you, they are not saying exactly the same thing. Jesus said, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, etc. And then it got really weird at Ken McDonald Golf Course because I had decided to speak up. In Tim Keller's great book, The Reason for God, he says this, not talking about this statement per se, but about the fact that people are so put off by a belief in an absolute truth. But the truth is, every single person, every one of us, appeals to an absolute truth, believes in an absolute truth, and and believes absolutely in the core of their being that there is absolute truth. Why do I say that? He says this, aren't there any people in the world who are doing things you believe are wrong and that they should stop doing no matter what? Of course. Talk to anyone. We all have this opinion that there are people in the world that are doing things that are absolutely wrong and they should stop no matter what. Then you do believe that there is some kind of moral obligation that people should abide by and which stands in judgment over their internal choices in convictions. You're appealing to a truth, something beyond yourself, something universal. We all believe in absolute truth. One of my closest friends is a neighbor. He's an, an atheist. He says he's agnostic, but he's an atheist. And uh, other two neighbors as well in the cul-de-sac. And we have a lot of community in our neighborhood. We're really close. We get out and we have a lot of fires together and, and when the weather's like this, 
And in every single conversation, whenever we're gathered around a fire, inevitably some subject comes up where everyone around the circle will make absolute truth claims. The Christians do it, of course we do, but also my agnostic and atheistic close friends will make absolute truth claims. And I rarely stop them to say, hey, you realize how inconsistent your worldview is, but it is. There is no absolute truth. There's absolutely no absolute truth, but they are constantly talking about all the stuff people should absolutely stop doing because it's absolutely wrong all the time. We would all agree that racism is always wrong. We would all agree that what happened in Nazi Germany and the extermination of millions of people was wrong and awful and should have been fought and stopped at every cost. They would agree with that. You and I would agree with that. Why? Because it's true. All of us voted, well... All of us should have voted this last week. And if you did vote, you did so probably on the conviction that you wanted justice to prevail. Some of you did it in one direction, other in another direction. But the reality is you both probably have the same impulse, which is this. You believed your vote may help justice for our nation at some level and bring about good for yourself and your neighbor. That's why you did it. You may not have loved the choices you had, but at the end of the day, you made a choice based on that ideal. If there's nothing but the material world, and at the end of the day, there's nothingness when this is over, then ultimately what Tolstoy says is, none of it really matters. There is no actual justice. All we are left with is my truth and your truth, and it's not enough. Back to my golfing story. All religions are the same. At their core, every religion gives us a path to follow, and if we follow that path faithfully enough, you can be saved. That's true. There's a lot of similarities to religion. But not like my golfing buddy was saying. Every other world religion other than Christianity has offering a path that if you follow that path, then you'll get to God. Islam, obedience to the pillars. Hinduism, good deeds leads to good in your life. Karma, you do good here then in the next life you'll you'll improve your lots buddhism obedience to the eightfold path judaism keep the law but christianity doesn't offer a path it offers a person christ says i am the way i am the truth i am the life we believe in him. We put our hope in him. He is our salvation. He is the way to God. No one can get to the Father except through me. What is the work we should do in order to be saved? Someone asked Jesus, and he said, believe in the one the Father has sent himself. Believe in me. Trust in me. Hope in me. We're saved by faith in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Are you troubled right now? If you're not, you're probably not paying attention. <laughs> How are we going to handle trouble? We need to turn up the volume and the mix of our life, these promises of God. But here's one of my grave concerns for myself, for my wife, for my boys, and for you is how difficult it is right now for us as a people, as God's people living on planet Earth in, in 2020 with the, the culture we have and the technology that we have, how difficult it is for us to turn up the volume of God's promises for us in any given moment. 
Because day to day and moment by moment, what we are bombarded with is trouble. And that's always been true. There's always been trouble. In Jesus' day, there was trouble. At the forming of our nation in the 1700s, there was trouble. They fought duels over politics. I don't expect uh, our candidates to line up somewhere in New Jersey and shoot each other this week. That's what they used to do. So there's been trouble. Watch Hamilton. You know, it's, it happened. And it's great music, by the way. So there's always been trouble, but one of the differences we're experiencing due to technology, and we're not anti-technology, God's blessed us with technology, but one of the things we have to be careful about as God's people in this moment is this. We were not created to be able to sustain what we're currently sustaining, which is this. It's almost at a level of omniscience, not really, but it's a semi-omniscience of information. When we go online and you're on social media and you have 1,500 friends like I do on Facebook or whatever and all of a sudden I'm hit with all of this information at once. I'm not having coffee with them. I'm not sitting down to catch up or even on a phone call. It's just all at once coming at me, information. And they're troubled about this and the other one's troubled about that and this and this and this and it just weighs on us. Trouble everywhere. And if you turn down politics today, the virus will just get turned up here next week, and then there'll be something else. Maybe it's the stock market, maybe it's this, it's your friend has cancer. And we live with this constant barrage of trouble, trouble, trouble. Friends, I don't have all the answers of how we get the volume of the trouble down for us in a a life with social media, but we have to begin to think of the ways in which technology is affecting us and our emotions in our heart and our life, and the news and the ways in which we're getting information constantly because it is so loud in our ears. When, where, and how will God's promises increase in its volume in your heart if you're spending this time right now, this week, and this is the only time that you're getting some of God's promises in your sound mix. So it's happening right now. But what about tomorrow? What about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Because the trouble never stops. And the volume of trouble is so loud in your ears, friends, as God people, more than ever, it's always been true, but, but more than ever, I believe, we have to turn up the volume of God's word and God's promises in our life and be thinking about ways in which we're receiving information, being mindful and wise about our behavior in terms of how much time we're spending listening to trouble on the internet, on cable news, etc. We have a study right now in the Gospel of John, and it's available online, of course, but it's also available in the foyer right now. It's, we have a little blue book and a little yellow book, and it, it takes you through the entirety of the Gospel of John where you read the Gospel of John, and we have prayers arranged for you five days a week out of seven, and also a family devotional. It, it's assigned to dates right now, and you're like, I haven't even started. It doesn't matter. Forget the dates. Just begin on day one and work your way through it where you read the Gospel of John and you experience God's promises. We must increase the volume of God's promises in our hearts and our life in order to sustain the amount of negative information we're getting and troubling news if we're going to cling and enjoy God's promises the way Jesus is calling us to.
Becky and I were thinking about adopting a puppy. I know, we already have one. And there was another puppy that needed rescue, and it was this awesome little puppy. I met it at a, a dog park, and I came home. and like, Becky, can we try this? You know. And anyway, we get this puppy. And it took one night to realize, no. <laughs> we're, we're a one-puppy family. Like I said, we already have one puppy. So two is too much, and we found a great home for this puppy. But when we brought it home, one of the reminders of why I don't want another puppy is the whining. But I have, this, I have this, these earbuds that I wear, and believe it or not, that entire night I listened to an app, and it, it's rain noise that, dr- that drowned out, you know, they, they, that I couldn't hear the dog whining. Luckily, she didn't whine for very long. But I cranked up the volume of rain. For me, this works. And I was able to sleep with this loud rain in my, in my ears instead of the whining of the puppy. And this is exactly what we need to do. We need to increase the volume of God's promises. So that... The troubling message somehow can be dulled and we can rest in who God is. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but he emptied himself and became a servant even unto the cross he literally entered the very core of trouble so that we could have such a promise as the one he's given us he was troubled so that we could experience peace we're so thankful for that father as we come to your table now in Jesus good name amen